following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. word this morning and turn with me to the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. The eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. If you're here and perhaps new to the Bible, Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament just after the book of Acts. Just to be open and upfront, my hope and my prayer this morning is twofold. Number one, that those of you who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who have turned from your ways and have entrusted your sinful soul into his sinless hands as the only Savior who is able to save you, that you walk away from this place today with a sweet and confident assurance that you belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to him. And that in having such assurance that you live and labor both in public and in private with a passion for his all-satisfying glory. That's my first hope and prayer. And secondly, it's also my hope and prayer that if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, meaning that you really know nothing of repentance toward God, nothing of saving faith in Christ, real faith in Christ, and nothing of what it means to be forgiven and delivered from the punishment and power of sin, that God opens your eyes to see and then to savor the glory of his son. And in seeing your desperate need of him, that you come to him and you call upon him to save you. Just think of the kindness and grace and mercy of God this morning that he allowed you one more Sunday before the judgment seat, before the day of judgment, before your job is forgotten, before your family's forgotten, before your life is forgotten and you stand before the blazing fire of his holiness on that last day. He allowed you one more Sunday to hear the one message that is able to lead you like a little child to trust in his son who alone is able to save you and forgive you and redeem you and bring you to God. As the Bible says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it goes on to say, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. May faith come to you this morning as you hear the word of Christ. As we turn this morning to Romans chapter eight, we are going to be looking at verses 31 through 39. However, I'm gonna begin reading at verse 28 just to give you some of the context leading up to these towering verses. I've entitled this message, Five Questions That Fuel the Flames of Christian Assurance. So as always, it's with a profound sense of privilege and unworthiness and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the words of the true and living God this morning. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. Paul says to these believers in Rome, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Without question, Romans chapter 8 is one of the best-known, best-loved chapters in the entire Bible, and for good reason. Not only is it part of a larger section within the letter to the Romans that begins in chapter 5 and verse 1, but it also serves as Paul's climax to this section where Paul expounds upon the glorious hope and the confidence that belong to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says back in chapter 5, verse 2, through Christ we have obtained access by grace, by faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then carrying on that theme throughout this the next few chapters, we get to the culmination in chapter 8 where the apostle speaks of the hope we have of a new creation, a new creation, a creation that is finally set free from its bondage to decay and corruption. In other words, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell with God eternally in righteousness On that day, Paul says that we, as the people of God, will finally receive our glorified bodies, bodies that will no longer be susceptible to sin, no longer be susceptible to sorrow, to suffering, to sickness. Paul says that we were saved in this hope. But until then, Paul says that we, with the entire creation around us, we groan as we await that day. And why do we groan? Why is creation groaning? Why are there earthquakes and tsunamis? And why does it seem like the earth is in travail, like in birth, ready to give birth to something? Well, Romans chapter 8 tells us that what's going to be born in that day is a new creation. God's going to make all things new. But why do we groan? Well, because we're part of this fallen creation. We groan because of sin. And we groan because of suffering. And we groan because of sickness. And we groan because of sorrow both in us and all around us. And yet even in the midst of all of this, Paul reminds us in verse 18 of chapter 8 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Remember, that's how this entire section began in chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul declares that because of Christ, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But Paul isn't ignorant here. He's not ignorant of the fact that we still live in the here and now. He's not calling the church. He's not calling Christians 
to either put their heads in the sand and pretend like everything's okay in the world. And he's also not calling us up to cloud nine to pretend like everything's down, good down on earth. He's not doing that. He isn't pretending as though sin and suffering don't discourage us and sometimes even derail us and tempt us to despair. Paul's not ignorant. That's why he lays down one of the sweetest promises in the entire Bible, Romans 8, 28. Look at it with me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to notice there that Paul sets forth five rock solid realities. Number one, God is at work in the lives of his people. As John Stott says, he is ceaselessly, energetically, and purposely, purposefully active on our behalf. The second thing that verse teaches us is that God is at work for the good of his people. He's not just at work, he's working for the good of his people. In other words, the sovereign God who controls the universe has our greatest good in mind. Number three, God is at work causing all things, all things to work for the good of his people. In other words, God just isn't involved in the good things that are happening in our lives. God is involved in the bad things. The day of adversity, the day of peace, all of them are ordained by the Lord. He's not just involved in the good things that happen to us. No, his power and his control are such that ultimately everything, he will turn it out for our greatest good. Paul said elsewhere that this light momentary affliction that we experience is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Fourthly, this verse teaches us that God is doing all this, notice, for those who love him. For those who love him. In other words, this isn't a universal promise for the entire human race. This is specifically for the people of God, those who love him. And then fifthly, notice at the end of the verse that this verse refers to those who love God as those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are called according to his purpose. Remember what the Apostle John said? Very popular verse. We love God because he first loved us. Well, Paul's version of that is we love God because he first called us. Well, then Paul moves on to verse 29. Now watch this. You don't want to miss this. He's, he's now going to give the reason why all things are working together for the good of those who love God. Check this out. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And now listen to this unbreakable chain of salvation. Theologians call it the golden chain of redemption. There was four links here that can never be broken. Look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Another translation puts it like this. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. That's how God, in his word, describes our glorious and great salvation. It begins with God in eternity past, knowing his people, loving his people that weren't even created at that time, but he orchestrated and planned this whole thing in his mind before there was a world to house them, before there was a garden to house Adam and Eve. He already had the whole thing planned. He already foreknew each and every one of you who believe in him today he entered into a covenant relationship with you, covenant based upon his own worthiness and love, his own performance. And what did he do? Well, he not only predestined you, but he called you. For me, that was about 20 years ago. For some of you, it was recent. He called you to himself. 
And what did he do after he called you? Well, you believed in him. And what happened upon your faith? He justified you. He declared you to be right in his sight, not based on your performance, but upon the blood of Christ, like Romans 5 says. And after justifying you, it says that he glorified you. In other words, in God's mind already, it's as good as done. You are already glorified. You are already seated with him in the heavenly places. We don't feel glorified, do we? We feel the effects of sin in us every day, every minute of every day. And yet from God's perspective, he looks at the true Christian and he says, you're already glorified with Christ because it's as good as done and nothing is going to thwart my purposes. Nothing is going to frustrate my plan to bring you to myself in the end. That's the unbreakable chain of redemption here. Now, the reason we have any hope at all this morning is because salvation from beginning to end is the gracious work of an all-powerful, sovereignly merciful God who has planned and orchestrated our salvation before time began. And he is right now, today, working in the lives of his people to mold them and shape them and to conform them into the image and likeness of his son. And we know that the God who began this good work in us will what? Bring it to completion. God finishes his work. Well, then it gets even better. We then come to the conclusion, not only of the chapter, but of this entire section that began in chapter 5, verse 1, that deals with the Christian's hope and confidence in God. And for those of you who are familiar with music language, I think Michael Byrd is spot on when he says that verses 31 through 39 constitute a dramatic crescendo as Paul weaves together the motifs or the themes of divine favor and atonement and resurrection and grace and justification and the exaltation of Christ and the priesthood of Christ, suffering, triumph, and divine love. He says, Paul waxes eloquently about the majestic span of God's favor for believers in Christ Jesus despite the precarious nature of life, the pejorative taunts from rivals, and the danger of incurring the wrath of heavenly powers. Indeed, Paul is hymn-like in his reflection of how God's love in Christ Jesus wins a victory for believers over all things that might conceivably oppose them. Another theologian says of these verses that the magnificent and exalted style in these verses is immediately apparent. And the beauty of the text may be unrivaled in all of Paul's writings. So if the book of Romans is like the Himalayan mountain range of the Bible, right? What's the biggest mountain range in the world? The Himalayas, right? If the book of Romans, as many has referred to it as the Himalayan mountain range of the Bible, then Romans chapter 8 specifically verses 31 to 39, are the Mount Everest of this mountain range. Let's read it again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, what Paul is doing in these nine verses is summing up his argument in the form of questions of all things, right? If you want to persuade someone, what do you do? You give them propositional truth, objective truth, objective reality, absolute truth. Well, not Paul, and really, ultimately, not the Spirit of God. He comes to us in the form of these massively important questions. He's summing up his argument in the form of questions that the Christian believer is eternally secure in the love of God. I want to follow up this morning with one final message on assurance after we had spent five Sundays few months back, 
in 2 Peter chapter 1, dealing with the sweet but sorely misunderstood doctrine of assurance. Now, if I've lost you there, this is all we're talking about. The biblical doctrine or the teaching of assurance states this, that those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him sincerely, who seek to walk before him with a good conscience, can have the certainty and assurance in this life that they stand before God accepted and loved. They can rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and this hope will never put them to shame. When we're talking about assurance, it simply means that you can know that you know that you know that he knows you and that you know him. If I can state it even more simply, those who repent and believe the gospel, those who come to trust and follow Jesus Christ, can have the confident assurance that God is their father, that Christ is their savior, that the Holy Spirit is their ever-present helper, and that their sins are forgiven, that heaven is their home, and that they stand before God both now and forever in the perfect, spotless righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being assured of one's salvation is a gift from God that he wants all of his children to know and enjoy because he loves them and wants them to know that they belong to him. Now remember, we talked about it early on in the series on assurance, that this is one of the things that sets Protestants apart from Roman Catholics. You might recall in the mid-1500s, the Roman Catholic Church, in response to the Protestant Reformation, they held a council in the city of Trent to iron out and just to clarify what they believe because things were going crazy. People were leaving the Catholic Church. People were excited about the Bible. And they said, we really need to to, to hammer this down. We need to iron this out. And in chapter 9, which they titled, Against the Vain Confidence of Heretics, referring to the likes of us, they wrote these words, No one can know with a certainty of faith that he has obtained the grace of God. No one can know with a certainty of faith that he has obtained, received the grace of God. Well, they went a little bit further. In canon number 15, they declare, if anyone says that a man who is born again and justified is bound of faith to believe that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinated ones, Let him be anathema. In other words, let him be accursed. In other words, let that individual be damned to hell. And of course, we hear this and it's shocking at first because the Bible is so clear regarding the fact that assurance isn't just possible, but it's the normal experience of the born-again believer. But when you think about it, it's not hard to understand why Roman Catholicism denies that a person can have assurance because the entire system is built upon the premise that salvation is a joint effort between man and God. It's a system of belief that stresses that salvation is partly God's work and partly man's work. And so it's naturally going to deny that you can know with absolute certainty that you are and will be saved because they rightly acknowledge that as flawed human beings, we are prone to mess things up. And if we can mess things up and salvation partly depends upon us, well, then we can conclude that it's impossible to know for sure that we are God's people. But their fundamental flaw, and here's where it all goes back to, is in thinking that salvation partially depends upon us. The overwhelming testimony of the Bible is that salvation is of the Lord. He does the saving. He doesn't need or want or desire or expect our cooperation in salvation, especially since when he finds us, we are spiritually dead in our sins. So how can a spiritually dead person even lift a finger to help God in the matter of salvation. Now listen, I don't want you to miss this or be confused about this. The Bible does teach that when it comes to salvation, we have a part and God has a part. 
In salvation, we do do our part. And God does his part. And it comes down to this. Listen carefully. This is highly theological. We do the sinning. And God does the saving. We do the straying as lost sheep. And he does the seeking as the good shepherd. And so as we turn to these nine verses this morning, it's like listening to a crescendo in a beautiful orchestra. We come to the high point. We come to that, that high point in the orchestra where the orchestra's going all out and bringing out various motifs and melodies introduced in the earlier parts of the song. And they, 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 they reach their culmination here. And the aim of this passage, the aim of this section of Scripture is to bolster and fortify every Christian's confidence in God and before God and to fuel the flames of our assurance before God. And what's amazing and really actually breathtaking about this whole passage is that Paul accomplishes his goal of raising and elevating the church's confidence in God by asking questions. By asking questions. Questions can be very powerful in getting a point across. They force you to think of the answer. Instead of just telling the person, they force you to use your powers of reason. They require the engagement of the mind. And when it comes to the questions of the Bible, well, obviously these are the best ones because they're inspired by the Spirit of God who moved the human authors to write what they did. And that's what we have here at the end of Romans 8. And what I want to do this morning is call your attention to five Questions that are intended to fuel the flames of our assurance. To fuel the flames of assurance in those of you who belong to Christ by faith this morning. And for those of you who are outside of Christ, what I want you to know this morning is that these questions in this section apply to you, but in their reverse form, as we're going to see. And so let's begin in verse 31 where Paul begins. He asks the first question, what then shall we say to these things? This is more of an introductory question. It's a question of summary. Some, as I I have in the past, guilty of it, have read too much into this verse as though Paul is staggered by the glory of everything he's just written and in his amazement says, What then shall we say to these things? And some might put, in addition to the question mark there at the end, an exclamation point. What then shall we say to these things? And he's falling to the ground and angels are descending and the the heavens open up and it's just this glorious moment as Paul and Tertius are writing this letter. But I don't think that's what Paul's doing for the simple reason that this isn't the first time he's asked this question in his letter to the Romans. For example, chapter 3, verse 5 What shall we say? Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Chapter 6, verse 1. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You get the point. Chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? These are questions of summary intended to get the reader to think of the implications of what he's just previously taught. It's like, if you were to sit your child down and teach them a lesson and they, you're, you're done with the lesson and you say to that child, all right, now, what do we, what do, we do with this? What do we say to these things? It's a, it's a question of summary. He's asking essentially, what does this mean? What do we do with this? What do we say to these things? That's a good question, by the way, to ask when you're reading the Bible. Not necessarily, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to us? But more importantly, what does this mean, period? What does this mean in its original context? What's being revealed here? That's the important question. The Bible is intended to be a book that we don't just read, friends. It's intended to be a book that we interact with. It's God's word and we're meant to wrestle with it. We're meant to wrestle, first of all, with what it means. And then secondly, with how it applies, how it applies to us. So I ask you this morning, are you doing this with your Bible? Are you just reading it? 
Are you actually engaging it? Are you reading it the way you would a newspaper? Or are you engaging? Are you asking questions? Are you saying, what shall I say to these things? It's living and active, and it's meant to be interacted with. We're to engage the text. We're to interact with the text. And that's what Paul's doing here. Well, then he moves on to the first question that's intended to heighten the Christian's assurance in God. And check this out. The end of verse 31. That brings us to our first point, which is this. Let the question of opposition fuel the flames of your assurance. Let the question of opposition fuel the flames of your assurance. Look at what he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let that question fuel your confidence before God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if Paul had simply said, who can be against us? Man, you could think of a lot of things, right? We ourselves are against ourselves. I mean, Joe taught here before he left in Galatians chapter 5, and he talked about the battle between the flesh and the spirit when he talked about the fruit of the spirit, right? The spirit of God in us wants to produce love and goodness and kindness and gentleness, but there's a war within us because as Christian read in Romans 8 earlier, we have this thing, even after being saved, we have this thing called the flesh that wants its own way. And so if Paul were to simply say, well, who can be against us? I'd raise my hand and be like, I'm against myself. My flesh is against me. My sin is against me. I have relatives against me. People who think, well, you became just a self-righteous person and you don't want anything to do with your old religion anymore. We have people against us. We have the world against us. More than that, we have the devil against us. Like Peter says, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Like we read in the early chapters of Job, he is spotted roaming the earth back and forth seeking someone to devour. And so if Paul merely asked, who is against us? There'd be a whole host of replies. But that's not what he says. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And really, the force of the, the, the wording here is not so much a question as if God may be for us. No, it's literally since God is for us, because God is for us. He's already proven in the last eight chapters that God is for us. And so the force of it is, if God is for us, as he is, who can be against us? Who can really overcome us? Who can really bring us down Who can really lay us low in terms of our salvation? Now, again, I said earlier that if you're not in Christ, you can take these five questions, reverse them, and apply that to you. The reality is that if you're outside of Christ, God is not for you in your present state of unrepentance and impenitence. He cannot be for you. His nature is to be a lover of righteousness, a lover of goodness. And you, by your pursuit of yourself as your ultimate idol and your sin as your ultimate pleasure, by nature, his goodness demands that he turn against you, not just away from you, but against you because you are a sinner in his creation. And being a holy God, he must come against all that is unholy and unclean and sinful. In fact, some of the most terrifying verses in the Old Testament, we find that God, when God is against someone, for example, Ezekiel 38, verse 3, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech. Ezekiel 13, 8, because you have uttered falsehood and seeing lying visions, these are the false prophets, he says, I'm against you, says the Lord. Jeremiah 50, verse 31, behold, I am against you, O proud one. We talked about pride two weeks ago. This sinful pride that thinks an individual is better than everyone. God says, I'm against you. I'm not for you. I'm against you. Now, in what ways is God for us? Because this is an important question to ask. Because we go through life like this, right? We go to the Walmart later today and we don't find a parking spot. And what do we tell ourselves in in our foolishness? God must not be for me. I have to park all the way back here. 
Or, I got sick this week. God must not be for me. No, friends, think of the big picture here. Romans isn't talking about Walmart parking spots and, and sicknesses and seasonal illnesses. Romans is talking about a right standing before God, both now and on the day of judgment and forever. God is for you in that regard. He is for you in saving you, in finishing the good work he's begun in you. He's for you in bringing you everything you need so that you live for his glory and are satisfied in his glory and goodness. He is for satisfying your deepest longings and desires. He is for you in opening your mouth widely so that he fills that mouth with good things and goodness. I read a quote this week and it was so it so stood out to me. God actually is very good. It's just that people don't know what good is. The problem is that God is good, but we don't know what good is. He's for us, and therefore nothing can be against us. That's question number one. And so let the question of opposition fuel the flames of your assurance before God. But secondly, let the question of provision Feel the flames of your assurance before God. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's amazing about this portion of scripture is it's dealing with assurance, no doubt, but it tackles every conceivable, almost every conceivable excuse as to why we uh, are, are lacking assurance. For example, the first question has to do with who can oppose us. Opposition, right? It's a question of opposition. People tend to think, well, God must not be for me today. No, Scripture says he's for you. If you're in Christ, he's for you. That settles it. But the second thing is the question of provision. And people well-meaning believers go through lives just saying, I don't know if I'll be able to have what I need in order to really persevere to the end. I, I don't know what tomorrow might bring. And people literally are paralyzed by fear of the possibility of falling away, having come, come to Christ and then believing that maybe two years down the road, my desires for Christ will, 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 will become cold and dull and maybe I won't have what I need in order to fully persevere to the end. And he's tackling that and saying, hey, if he already gave you his son, he's going to give you everything you need to make it. It's, it's like if you came to me and let's say I gave you my greatest, I gave you my entire family. I, let, let's say you were on death row and someone needed to suffer in your place and I said, you can have my wife and my six sons and they go to the electric chair in your place and you're, you're, you're released of your crime because the, pro, the price has been paid. The, 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 the crime has been punished, paid for. And then you come to me about two months later and say, hey, I, I, I could really use, I know, man, but I could really use your son's jacket. Like, take his socks, take his, take care. I've already given you everything. Take whatever you need. That's the principle. Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. He who did not spare his own son. That language comes right out of Genesis 22, by the way. That same word is used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Abraham did not spare his son, right? Until the very end, God, the angel called out and said, Abraham, Abraham, don't do it. But it's the same language. Well, in God's case, he didn't spare his own son. In fact, the wording there is heavy because it gives us insight into the cross and what actually happened at the cross. You see, the cross wasn't the Romans being able to do what they wanted with Jesus, ultimately. The cross was not about Judas. The cross was not about the religious leaders, the Jews, and wanting to see Jesus put to death. The cross ultimately was about, the, was about God not sparing his son because he offered him up as a sacrifice for our sins. That means that God did not hold back. God did not spare. There was no holding back. The fullness of his justice and wrath fell upon the substitute that stood condemned in our place 
the one who stood damned in our place. God did not spare his son. The fullness of God's righteous fury fell upon the head of his innocent son in our place. And now Paul says, if he did that, will he not also with him graciously, lavishly, freely give you everything you need? Now, again, I have to clarify because there's preachers on the television that say, well, see, this is your ticket. This, this, this verse tells you that if God gave you his son, you can claim that Rolls Royce. You can claim that new house by faith. Sow your seed. You can have all you want. You can have this ranch over here. You can have, you can be a millionaire. That's not what he's talking about. What's the context of Romans? What's the context of Romans? The righteousness of God being given to unworthy rebels like us so that when we stand before God, we're not consumed by his blazing holiness. The all things in this text are the all things pertaining to salvation. All things pertaining to making it to the end. John Stott, in his amazing commentary on Romans, writes that the generosity of God guarantees, or sorry, this guarantees the continued generosity of God. The cross guarantees the continued generosity of God. Why? Because at the cross, God gave you heaven's best. Will he not give you what you need to continue to follow him and trust him and love him and walk in holiness? By the way, this is a strong, strong plea when you go before God in prayer. You need help in overcoming a certain sin. Go to God and instead of saying, Lord, I need help overcoming this sin, I need holiness and patience and endurance. Instead of just asking for holiness, patience and endurance, why don't you preface it by saying, God, Father, you, have, you did not hold back in giving me your best already, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you not with him give me holiness, patience and endurance? He gave you heaven's best already. He gave you his best. Will he not give you the least? So let the question of provision fuel the fires, the flames of your assurance before God this morning. He delivered him up, it says, for us all. Delivered him up. It's the same word that was used when Jesus was delivered up by Pilate and by the high priests. But when we, all, when we get back to the very beginning of it all, the top of the list, it was God who delivered him over according to his definite plan from all eternity. God delivered his son to the cross for us. The Romans, they were just pawns. They, yeah, they were guilty. They did what they did. Pilate was a coward. Judas was a coward. All these guys are culpable, definitely you know, guilty of their sin. But ultimately, this was the plan of God to deliver him over to crucifixion in our place that he might bear our sin and die our death and be damned in our place. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Who were the all there? Now in, his, in church history, there have been two answers. I'm gonna give you the right answer because there's a wrong answer and a right answer. I'm gonna give you the right answer. Some people have stated that this is all humanity. That he literally died as a substitute in the place of every human being in the universe. Well, if that's the case, then every human being in the universe should not have to suffer again for their sins if Christ has already suffered for their sins 2,000 years ago. If he satisfied justice for them 2,000 years ago, then those individuals have no business going to hell to experience the justice of God. No, the us all is the us all in the context. Those whom God foreknew, those whom God predestined, those whom God called and justified and glorified, those for whom it can be said, about whom it can be said, God is for you. That's the us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, listen to me. We've been studying in 2 Peter chapter 1. He's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Where does that generosity come from? How 
how will you go before God in prayer later to ask God what you need? Well, you can point back to the cross where God gave you not just a bit of heaven. He gave you the radiance of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and he crushed him for you. Go to him with what you need, knowing that he's given you his best already. Thirdly, I think Paul would say this morning, hey, let the question of accusation fuel the flames of your assurance. Not just the question of opposition, not the question of provision, not just those questions. Let the question of accusation fuel the flames of your confidence before God. Look at verse 33. He says, who shall bring any charge, any accusation against God's elect? Again, left to itself. Can you hear the hordes of accusations coming in? Left by itself, without the latter half of that verse, where it says, it is God who justifies. If Paul just said, who will bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen ones, those whom he chose before the foundation of the world? And we would cringe and we would cower and hide because we know that our conscience, number one, would condemn us. Like First John says, our heart would be the first one to condemn us. You hypocrite. You act all holy on the outside, but we know what you're like on the inside. I know what you're like on the inside. Your conscience saying you act all holy in front of other people, but I know how you really are with your wife and kids. Hypocrite. Our conscience would be the first one to condemn us of our idolatry, of our blasphemy, of our pride, of our arrogance. Our conscience, friends, is a good gift of God. Treat it well. But our conscience would condemn us. Let's face it. Who else would, I'm sorry, who else would accuse us? Our conscience would accuse us. Who else would be there to accuse us? Well, people who have seen our failures. People who have seen our faults. How about the unseen realm of angels and demons? We read in Hebrews chapter 1 that angels are sent to help those who are following Christ. How many times do you grieve an angel when he's sent to help you? And yet here you are walking in opposition to God's ways. It's like going going to someone to help them. And as you're helping them, they're kicking against you because they don't want the help. The angel is sent to help you, and there you are, kicking against the will of God, pursuing the works of the flesh. Angels would be there to, condemn, to accuse us, to bring charges against us. Our conscience, the unseen realm, angels, demons. Satan himself is known in the book of Revelation as the accuser of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Worst of all, though, worst of all, Who is to bring any charge against God's elect? Well, the only one who could bring a true charge and it leave us destroyed is the God who sees everything we do, everything we are, everything we do in thought, word, and in deed. But notice the next half of the verse. It is God who justifies. Who is to bring any charge against God's elect? When it's God who makes people right with him. That's what the word justifies refers to. It is God who declares his people to be righteous based upon the work of Christ. So imagine on that day, imagine on that day. I, I want you so badly to think of two days as the most important days in the history of the world. Number one, the day Christ stood before men condemned. The day Christ stood before the world as condemned on that cross. And the next greatest day is the day that men will stand before Christ. The cross and the day of judgment. And when you think of that day, you know what Paul's doing here? It's as though Paul... Really, I mean, let's, let's think of the bigger picture here. What is God doing here, right? The ultimate author of scripture is the spirit of God, God himself. You know what God's doing here? He's essentially saying, my children, my people, come under the shadow of my wings and I'll invite all of earth's opposition, all of heaven's opposition, all the opposition of hell, and I'll bring it, bring it. What are you gonna bring against my people? I've justified, 
based upon the blood of my son, who I did not spare, I gave him up for us all, for them all. Bring any charge. And all these charges fall like we think that they're arrows, right? Fiery arrows, and then we come to figure out that they're just nerf bullets that fall to the ground. Because these charges cannot ultimately bring us damnation. Why? Because these charges have already brought Christ damnation in our place. So let the question of accusation fuel the flames of your assurance. Fourthly, let the question of condemnation, kind of in a similar vein here, condemnation fuel the flames of your assurance. Verse 34, look at this. Who is to condemn? That is, who's to bring such charges and then to decide, yes, this person, this individual needs to be condemned. In other words, who's going to bring the final sentence? Who's going to bring the actual execution? Who's going to condemn? Now again, left to itself, we would cower because we know that God is the one. He's the righteous judge. And yet look at the rest of the verse. Who's to condemn? Here's the answer. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? What was the first step though? He died. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Now again, we have to read this in the context of the letter to the Romans. The first time the death of Christ is mentioned in the book of Romans is back in chapter 3, verse 25, where it tells us that he died as a propitiation for our sins. That's a big word that means that he died to satisfy the demands of justice and to bear in his body the wrath of God so that it would turn away from us and be exhausted by him. So Jesus died, according to Romans 3.25, to satisfy the justice of God so that the mercy of God could freely be extended to us without contradicting the justice of God that needed to be satisfied because of our sins. Chapter 4, verse 25, says that Jesus' death was for our trespasses. So we're putting the puzzle together here, right? What is the death of Christ in the book of Romans? Well, it's a propitiation. It's, it's, it's that he was delivered up for our trespasses. Romans 5, 6 through 10. He died for the ungodly, providing salvation and reconciliation. And then finally in chapter 8, verse 3, sin was condemned in the flesh of Christ. In other words, Jesus is... Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross and God condemned our sin, not in us, but in him. So when he says Christ Jesus is the one who died, he's already established why he died. He died to satisfy the wrath of God that should have been poured out upon us. He died to reconcile us to God, we who should have been alienated, separated from God for all eternity. And he died as a picture of the love of God. God loved the world, so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And Paul says, but it doesn't just end there. And right, the gospel doesn't end with the death of Christ. More than that, he says, who was raised. Without the resurrection, we would still be in our sins. Without the resurrection, without that first breath, being given to that dead body in that tomb that day, without him resurrecting from the dead, we would be hopeless today. There'd be no reason to sing. There'd be no reason to be here, right? Isn't that Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15? If Christ has not been raised, then let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Go live it up. Go live how you want, where you want, do what you want because Christ is not raised. But he says more than that, he was raised. And not just raised, he was exalted. Where? It says here, the third element, to the right hand of God. Hebrews calls that the right hand of the majesty on high, far above, as Ephesians 1 says, all rule and authority and every name that is named. 
God the Father, because he was pleased with the sacrifice of his son, three days later, raised him up and exalted him to sit at his right right hand. And what is he doing there? Fourthly, he's interceding for us. And his intercession cannot fail. Remember, he told Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that when you return, that your faith will not fail. I prayed for you that your faith will not fail, but when you return, I want you to go strengthen your brothers. Why was Peter able to return? I mean, we read about the story, right? Peter denies Christ three times. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. This is his closest disciple. And he says, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. And he begins to get angry the third time. And yet, why did he return? Because Christ, his priestly intercession prevailed. He says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's why he returned. And in the same way, Christ ever lives to make intercession for his people. Sometimes we're discouraged, right? Because we feel alone in the Christian life. I don't know who's praying for me. I don't know if anyone's praying for me. Listen, Christian, if no one else is praying for you, the most important person in the universe is praying for you. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ and his prayers do not fall to the ground. His prayers do not uh, hit a brass ceiling because of his own sin. His prayers prevail. Paul says, who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus died for us. He was raised for us, exalted for us, and he intercedes for us. And now we come to the last one. Let the question of separation fuel the flames of your assurance before God. We've considered the question of opposition, the question of provision, the question of accusation, the question of condemnation, and finally the question of separation. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he asks, every conceivable thing that might put us in danger Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine? Tribulation, that means trouble. Distress, the anguish that comes from that trouble. Persecution, if the government turns up the heat and makes it so that preaching the gospel is illegal because it's offensive to common man who's sophisticated and well-educated and good as the world wants us to believe. Preachers are spreading hate crimes because they're telling people that they're sinners and they need to repent and turn to God. Friends, it's happening all over the world. Do you realize that we're one of the only countries in the world where it's not yet illegal to be a Christian and believe this book? Our brothers and sisters all around the world are suffering intense, hot persecution. It's happening in a neighboring country right now, Canada. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's illegal to preach against certain sins and to call certain people out of those sins into the light of Christ. Will will persecution separate us, Paul says? How about famine? What if if I'm persecuted to the degree that I'll lose my job, Lord, and then in losing my job, I'll lose my food and I'll endure famine and eventually nakedness and prison and danger and sword, that is death ultimately. And he says in verse 36, as it is written, and he quotes from the Old Testament regarding the people of God persecuted back then. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's who the Christians are, sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, though, look at the answer. No, in all these things, always remember that. Not being delivered out of these things in the present age, No, he doesn't say escaping all these things. No, he says in the midst of all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. The word is literally super conquerors. We are more than conquerors. We prevail through him who loved us. That's the Lord Jesus Christ whose love was displayed, Romans 5, 8, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. You say, well, how is that? 
explain how persecution, how in persecution you're a conqueror. Well, your master went there. You're following in his steps. He's risen and he's waiting for you. If this persecution leads to your death, guess what? You'll be raised to life and you'll meet with him forever. Well, what about tribulation and distress? Again, what's, what, what, what worse than death? And yet even death, the gospel turns death into a chariot to take us to be with our Lord. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And verse 38 says, for I am sure, I am certain. And I want you to see here that all of this talk on assurance is based on objective truth, right? Actual historical accomplishments that God has done in and through Jesus Christ. None of what he's talking about has, has I mean, prior to this, he talked about how the Spirit of God assures us that we are children of God. But in terms of what he's talking about here in 31 through 39, the assurance is objective. It's not subjective. He's not saying, well, I just feel like neither death or life will separate us from these things. I just feel like, I have this feeling in my heart that I'll never be separated from the love of Christ. No, Paul says, based upon what Christ has done, God's for us and not against us. He did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. And therefore, that guarantees that he'll give us everything we need to persevere to the very end. Who's to condemn? Well, I feel like Jesus died for me. No, he died for his people. Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? This is objective assurance here. I am sure, certain, convinced, persuaded that neither death nor life. This is huge. I don't know if I'll be able to really hold fast to Christ on my dying bed. Well, you're not even guaranteed to have a deathbed. But even if you do, death will not separate you from him. What about life? I'm young. Uh, what's going to happen 30 years from now? I'm with you, man. I, I, there are fears of, I, I have fears of things happening in the future. And I've, I've told myself, I don't know if, if that ever happened to me. I don't know that... And I'd have the strength to follow Christ in that day. Paul says, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers. That is, more than likely referring to angelic, demonic beings. Nor things present, nor things to come. Well, that, can't, that, that entails the future. Well, what if the future, I don't know what the future holds. Well, we're reading about the one who holds the future. Nor powers, verse 39, last verse, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what shall we say of these things? We could just repeat these questions all over again, right? Well, if God's for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son. Are we really gonna go without what we need? No. The reality is these truths before us this morning are intended for us as Christians to consider. Consider all that God has done for us in Christ. Let this be the ground of your assurance before God, both now and on the day you stand before him. And again, it's worth mentioning, this epic passage on assurance is rooted in the objective, what God has done, rather than in the subjective, what we feel. Paul doesn't reach this climax and say, well, I feel like we are more than conquerors. I feel like we're more than victorious. I feel like neither death nor life will be able to separate us. No, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we can be sure and convinced that nothing will separate us from God's love because of what he's done for us as his elect ones. The subjective feeling of assurance must be rooted in the objective truth of the gospel. Now, I end with those of you who are not in Christ this morning. 
all the glorious, heartwarming truths in this passage are and will be reversed when it comes to you because you're not in Christ. So long as you remain dead in your sin and desirous of sin, God, by his very nature, because of his very nature, is not for you. He's for you turning, but he's not for you remaining in your sin. Every sin you've committed, think about this, in thought, in word, and in action, will be charged against you on that last day, and you will be condemned. When it says, who will condemn? Friend, if you're not in Christ, you're not free from this. You will be condemned to everlasting punishment. And here's the horrible thing. Without anyone in your defense, without any advocate, the believer has an advocate. Who is it? The Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine having a defense lawyer like him at your side when you stand before God on the day of judgment. But imagine being alone. Your conscience condemning you on the day of judgment, the law condemning you, the gospel and its goodness condemning you that you refuse to repent with the mercy of God in mind. You will not have an advocate. The law will condemn you. Your conscience will condemn you. Angels, demons will condemn you. The worst of all, God will accuse and condemn you. And yet, I want you to know this. Even now, God offers you mercy. God offers you pardon. God offers you forgiveness, a full and free forgiveness. God offers you freedom from condemnation if you will but turn and trust in the person of his son. There's another question in the Old Testament that rings loud and clear. God says to lost people, why will you die? Why will you die? And what he's talking about is why will you be condemned? Is your sin really that worth it? Is your autonomy really that worth it? Is your own cleverness really that worth it to hold on to? Having become foolish, people think themselves wise. Friends, for the rest of us, let us trust in the Lord Jesus Christ all the more. Let us approach the throne of grace, considering the questions of what we discussed today. Who will condemn? Who will accuse? Who will separate? Will we have what we need? God already gave us the best. If God's for us, who can be against us? I mean, this tackles everything. I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if, if, if persecution, I don't know about death, I don't know. Listen to God's word, believe God's word, rest in God's word, rejoice in God's word. Let's pray.